So before we get any further, I think our, we had some confusion at the 8.30 service, and they didn't realize that the same bulletin is the same bulletin. So if you did not get a bulletin, I went, and just like Jesus, they were resurrected. <clears throat> so if you don't mind it, having be a little bit resurrected out of the recycling. Raise your hand, uh, letting somebody know, because you want the bulletin because it's got the new members in it, and you want it because it's got the budgetary stuff and stuff, so you see kind of pockets of people. Thank you so much. Just keep your hands up. We've got a few that are coming around, and I'll just also assume that you're waving at me, and that will make me feel real happy. Have you ever known someone that pretty much knows one thing and that's all they know and that's all they care to know and that's just the end of the story? You know, I, that you can tell them a big subject, ask them a big subject, and they know one thing about it and that's all they know and that's all they care to know and that's all they want to know. Well, there was a guy like that that I took Spanish with. And in North Carolina, you have a really good shot of learning Spanish in a public school. You have a less than average chance of learning how to pronounce it correctly because we're Southern. Um, but... I had a guy in my Spanish class, and he was a huge basketball player, and he was your typical what you what I would call a brick, you know, I don't know, not the way he shot, but just the, kind of the way he thought, and the most Spanish idea that our Spanish teacher had was that we were going to, as a Spanish class, learn the 12 days of Christmas in Spanish and sing it to the other Spanish classes. That's the most Spanish idea ever I've ever heard in my entire life, and so just to give you a little bit of sample of the fact that some of us actually remembered the song and our moms taught Spanish too, it would be like... Like, it was the third day of Christmas. En el tercer día de Navidad, mi amante me mandó. And then if you started with three, two, one, that's great. But so this guy, D, when we were handing out, like, the Who Wants the Turtle Doves and the Maids of Milking and all this, he was like, I, I, want the, I want the partridge in a pear tree. And so she was like, all right. Es un perdiz en un peral. And he's like, es un perdiz en un peral. She was like, No. Es un perdiz en un peral. Un perdiz en un peral. You know, I mean, it's just like, como te llamas. And it's just the same thing. And so, but he was so proud that he learned that statement. So he'd be like, en el tercer día de Navidad, mi amante me mandó tres gallinas francesas, dos tortolas, y un perdiz en un peral. And then just with authority would do that. Well, what, what happens after that? Well, you leave for Christmas break, right? Un perdiz en un peral was all that D learned. So when we get to January and February, and she's like, how do you conjugate this verb in the subjunctive tense? And, and she would call on him and call on him. And then she'd be like, en Esteban. That was his name in Spanish. We all have cool Spanish names. And she'd be like, Esteban. And he'd go, un perdiz en un peral. And, and then people laughed. It wasn't funny in May when he was still doing it. Why? Because it was all he knew. And he didn't want to know anymore, and that was all he knew. I want to tell you the truth. When we talk about suffering, all that Christians typically know is suffering is bad, avoid it at all costs. If, we're getting, if you want to know what I feel about suffering, suffering is bad, avoid it at all costs. And that is very typically an Old Testament understanding of suffering. There are very few places in the, in the Old Testament where we can know. Joseph may be an example of, you know, Joseph, for what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The conclusion of the story of Job is that way, but leading up to it's not that way. And suffering is typically seen as a bad thing. But we know that the version that we understand of suffering has actually been changed for us. It's actually been changed for us because of what Christ has done on the cross. 
And so I would challenge you, if you cannot explain why suffering is good, then you're going to have a really hard time rolling up into someone's you know, yard as you are out there walking in your neighborhood or whatever, and you say, hey, can I share this Bible verse with you? Because it goes like this. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they're good for us, and they help us to learn and endure. That's Romans 5.3, by the way. How many of y'all have that, and you just go, yeah. Or do you go, deep down inside, I read that, but in reality, I, I know, I really know, suffering's bad. Avoid it at all costs. Or how about this? Can anything ever separate us from God, Christ's love? We love that part. We like that part. But then this, we're not so sure about this one. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or cold or danger or threatened with death? And most of the time we go, yeah, I believe that. But secretly the answer is yes, I'm pretty sure God doesn't love me when I have to suffer. But we have a different view of what suffering is because of Christ. And so when we look at this suffering in John chapter 19, we're going to have to figure out a few things because it's a big topic. But we're going to have to come to some honest discussions about suffering. And one is just simply to look at John 19, 1 through 3. And take your finger and measure it in the Bible. Go ahead. If you have it out there in front of you, take your finger and measure it in your Bible. I'm going to measure John 19, 1 through 3 in my Bible. And it's this long and this wide. Except for we know that suffering, and as far as Christ's suffering goes, is something that takes mere sentences to describe or recount but a lifetime to endure. Isn't that, way, isn't that the way suffering is? You know, you can say, as a, as a mom, I spent nine months in labor and I spent about 12, I mean, I spent nine months, you know, golly, nine months in labor, wow. All right. And nine months pregnant, and then I spent, you know, I spent 18 hours in labor. Some of y'all are like child's play. I was like 26, you know. But it just goes so quickly, except for we know that that time felt like an eternity. And I would say for Christ, the beauty of understanding Christ's suffering is it took just a little bit of time. But actually, even though it felt like a lifetime, Christ actually accomplished everyone in the world's lifetime worth of suffering right there on the cross. In Isaiah 53, we remember that it says it was the Lord's goodwill to lay upon him the sins of us all. And so every single one of us in Christ endured a lifetime of suffering. He endured it for us and did it. The second thing that we understand about suffering is when we look at suffering, even as we would try to describe what it was like. If someone described, said, you know, what was it like for you after you had your shoulder surgery? Well, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride, but there's a part where they take Wesley to the pit of despair. So they take him to the pit of despair where someone has created a machine to try and figure out and measure suffering. And so they take him down to the pit of despair. They turn the suffering machine on. He suffers for a while, and they say, can you tell me about how you felt? And he simply goes, because <laughs> words cannot also adequately describe Christ's suffering. We have, we have this idea that suffering is not something that should be avoided, or suffering is not something that is a dirty word, not because we have changed our minds about it, but because Christ in this text, and in the truth of his gospel, changed suffering forever. I feel like I should probably warn those of you who see Pastor Paul and me, particularly at 8.30's service, share the sermon time, that typically he preaches, then I preach, and then we're done. 
we're not done when I, when I get up this time, right? It's going to be Paul, then Bob, then Paul again, and then Bob again. Just warning you, okay? Just letting you know. We, we both get about uh, five minutes each time we do this. So my, fi- my, next fi- my first five minutes are going to take us to who Pontius Pilate is and why he's in the story. Think about this. We're studying the Apostles' Creed, and it's in your bulletin if you want to look at it, if you're not familiar with it. But why does Pontius Pilate get honorable mention in the Creed? We got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary, and we're putting Pontius Pilate in there? Like, why don't we need Abraham or David or John or Peter or Paul or somebody good? Like, why does Pontius Pilate get in here? And the answer is Pontius Pilate is critical to the grounding of the story of Jesus in actual fact and history. Christianity is a historical faith. It's not just that we believe certain legends and myths and we kind of like them a lot because they're great stories. These are things that actually happened. And we look at Pontius Pilate, we not only have the evidence of the scripture and we have the evidence of Josephus and other first century historians, but we actually have a piece of archaeological evidence that was, that was found in 1961 in a town called Caesarea Maritima. There's a little monument you're going to see on the screen there. And this was, this was unearthed after you know, almost 2,000 years. And I know you don't read Latin very well, most of you, and besides, part of the inscription is broken. But what it says in this town that was Pilate's sort of headquarters to the divine Augustus Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judah, dedicated this. In other words, Pontius Pilate says, I'm, I'm taking this monument and I'm honoring Caesar uh, with this particular inscription. Now, that's fascinating to us because now we have ex, what we call extra-biblical archaeological evidence that there was a Pontius Pilate, that he was the prefect or the governor of Judea, and that this grounds this story that we're reading in history. So when the creed says, we're talking about Pontius Pilate, we do have uh, another piece of evidence that this is actually a historical thing that happened on this day. Now, Pilate got this gig, that is to say the governorship of Judea, on the recommendation of a man by the name of Sejanus. And Sejanus is the guy who was sort of Caesar's buddy. In fact, the phrase friend of Caesar was later coined by him. Uh, that's sort of something you aspire to. So when later in this story, the Jews are going like, you're no friend of Caesar. It's not just, you know, you're not Pastor Paul's good buddy or whatever. It's like, that's a formal title. You're not a friend of Caesar if you let Jesus go. However, about this time, and we think it was right before the trial of Jesus, Sejanus himself had lost favor with the emperor and had not only been removed from office, but had been executed. And a number of other people who were close to him had been executed. Now imagine you're Pontius Pilate in this very awkward situation, and you realize that because you were put there on the recommendation of of Sejanus, and he's now gone, you better get this one right. So he had his headquarters over on the coast, but he comes to Jerusalem when there's a piece of official business that he needs to take care of. And his responsibility in the province of Judea is peace and control. The Romans don't really care about all the details as long as the population is under control. And and another one of Pilate's problems is that in a previous situation, he had angered the Jewish leaders by posting uh, pictures of the emperor for them to worship, which was very anti-Jewish, and even by minting coins with pagan religious symbols, which again had offended the Jewish leaders. So they're going like, we're going to tell Caesar that this is strike three if you don't get this one right. 
Furthermore, uh, he had been charged with cruelty in his handling of a Samaritan uprising in nearby Mount Gerizim. Eventually, Pilate committed suicide, which tells you something else about the kind of man that he was and the struggles that he had inside his head. So when we find Pilate here sort of nervous and vacillating, we kind of wind up with a little bit of compassion for Pilate. He's in a tough spot here. Because he's, he's, he's supposed to keep the peace and do the right thing, but on the other hand, the local leaders are insisting he do something else. Now, Jews were allowed to follow their own law as long as it did not conflict with Rome, and that allowed a certain amount of leeway, or at least looking the other way, if they were going to, say, stone somebody to death. We find evidence of that in the New Testament. However, uh, not when it came to crucifixion. So crucifixion was going to be the uniquely Roman punishment, and that's what the Jews wanted to have happen to him because then the people would stop saying, well, like he would stop thinking, well, he has the favor of the people, right? If you're crucified and you're a Jew, then you are automatically not a hero anymore. Uh, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, the Old Testament says. So if the Jews can get Pilate to do it, they don't have to stone him. They still get rid of him, but they crucify him, and then it sort of demotes him in the eyes of the people. So a lot of this exchange has to do with who's really the king, and you see this play out in this whole passage. Who's the Caesar? Who's the king? How are we connected to him? And is Jesus a threat to Rome? Pilate's instinct is no. I mean, you think about the Jesus that you know and the stories that you know in the gospel. Uh, set aside for a moment everything else that's happening here, all those stories in the gospel, is the Roman Empire going to say, this guy's probably a threat to us? So Pilate says, no, there's no evidence that there's any sense of, uh, of treason or uprising here. I think the man is innocent. But uh, Pilate is also in charge of the peace, and if the Jews are going to insist that, they, that he crucifies Jesus, then eventually he has to cave in. Pilate is also a religious man but in a Roman kind of way. So he's a superstitious man. They believe in lots of gods. And when the Jews say he claimed to be the son of God, Pilate's going like, oh, this is getting really bad. I not only have the risk of offending Caesar, I might be crucifying a god here right in front of me. So we feel sorry for, for Pilate, but the Jews have been planning for this for a long time. It's been building, and they feel like now, with Jesus in Jerusalem and Judas having uh, handed them an opportunity to get Jesus in secret, and this trial that takes place at the break of dawn when most of Jesus' followers and his, and his, the, his sympathizers were not there in the middle of town, they have their moment, and the Jews are not going to let this go. So we find ourselves in a sense, with some sympathy for Pilate, but also all of our sympathy is directed to Jesus. This isn't right. And we're pulling for the story to end that differently than it will. Why does, why does uh, Pilate have to go ahead with this? You read the story going like, if he only knew, maybe he would have let Jesus off. But John is doing something else in this story when John tells us in verse 14 that this happened around the time of Passover in the midday on the, on the day of preparation for Passover. So some people make a big deal out of the timeline difference between the other Gospels and John. I'm not going there. I just want to point out that what John is doing is very significant to the story because John is saying, this is where I was going back in chapter 1 when I told you that one of the first times John the Baptist introduced Jesus to his friends, he said... Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And John now in chapter 19 is saying, this is Passover. You don't need all those other lambs. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is here in front of you. So at the risk of going places where you know, let's talk about Christ's suffering on a physical level. And again, just concentrating and looking at verses 1 through 3. We know where it just it takes this much space to talk about something that must have felt like an eternity. So when it says that he ordered Christ to be flogged, that was something called a cat of nine tails would have been, which would have been a kind of a rod with leather long thongs attached to it. And they would have had either a piece of fragment of bone or metal melted into it. And if you want to think about like ever having been scratched by a cat, well, that's small. But if you think about being scratched by a tiger or, um, or a lion, it was designed to go to you and stick to you as you're whipped to it. And then it would be pulled back off, which would then, of course, pull your flesh off. And so this is not something that was kind of like, oh, you know, he was flogged. And we kind of need to go there and understand what happened. When it talked about him being beaten as well, he was not just beaten about the face. This did not just only happen when he was slapped about by the leaders of the, the religious establishment. The if you can just imagine, you know, that time, maybe, maybe guys, you can go with me into to being in the locker room and, and you see that one guy that's cornered by the other people and you just kind of go, oh no, something bad's going to happen. And, but this is Christ being taken out into back to their place where essentially they have their way with him. And so Christ is coming simply to only offer mercy, grace, love, truth, and a connection with God. And he is met with mockery and pain. And so they take him and they beat him. Now, I don't know if you guys have had a single goose egg on your head, but can you imagine that in many different places? And then they took what was called an acacia vine, and this would have been something that would have had large spikes on it, dried out. Think about like a really bad Christmas wreath that's really pointy, spiky, and it wasn't just put on his head. You know, it was taken and it was pulled down on his head so that the the the, the crown would come into contact with his actual skull bone. Now. I say all that to say this, concentrating and focusing on Christ's suffering and the emotionality that comes out of that is not a substitute for repentance and acceptance of the gospel. The emotionality of responding to how Christ suffered is not substitution for repentance and acceptance of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I grew up and probably by the time I was in just middle school, I had been to more crusades, Sunday night camp meetings, revivals out of the tent, all these kind of things where you would go and for hours whip up into an emotional frenzy talking about Christ's suffering and then offer just a chance to emotionally respond to that. And an emotional response to Christ's suffering is not repentance or an acceptance of the gospel. I know this because... Not only are we going to see it in the text, but if you can go back with me, I guess this is more than a decade ago, that when Mel Gibson, before he fell out of favor with everyone, came, up, came out with the movie The Passion of the Christ. And I remember seeing it on other news outlets, and you would see where he was screening the movie in both Hollywood and Nashville. And as he's screening the movie in Hollywood and Nashville, and maybe these are easy people to pick on, I'm sorry, but he's showing this movie to people who are Grammy Award-winning artists people who are Oscar award-winning actors and actresses. And it would show them, see the camera is on them as they're watching the movie, seeing Christ's suffering. Which I tend to think that Mel Gibson does a good job of taking what is this small in John 19 and this small in Matthew 27 and showing you really what happened. 
And you can see the brokenness and just the emotionality and people weeping and the silence and just the awe and of, of, of seeing Christ suffer. And yet what happened? We didn't see mass revival in Hollywood or Nashville, did we? Why? Because it was nothing but an emotional response. And we know that when we also look at this text and we go right here and it says in verse 4, Pilate goes out again and says to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand that I clearly find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And I would add from Isaiah 52, beaten so badly that you could not recognize that he was a man. That's what Isaiah 52 tells us about what would happen to the Lamb of God. Here is the man, and then in verse 6, how do the people respond being shown Christ's suffering? Crucify him. Crucify. Because an emotional response is not the same as repentance and responding to the gospel in faith. Moms, when you had your baby, did your baby pop out and turn and say, thank you so much for enduring all that mess with me, no epidural... Thank you. Now, why? Because they're incapable of understanding the pain and suffering that you went through that they might have life. An unregenerate person not only is incapable, but will not be capable of responding to Christ's suffering unless they understand that that suffering was substitution. That Christ did not suffer because it was a beautiful or awful spectacle either way. Christ suffered to glorify God, and Christ suffered in our place. And suffering makes all the difference when we understand, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and 2, when he talks about all the awful things that people do in Romans chapter 1, and then he begins Romans chapter 2, and you all are just as bad. You all deserve the suffering of being alienated by God. But Christ came and took your place. And now suffering makes sense to us. And we don't respond just in emotion to Christ's suffering, but we respond to what he did on our behalf. So this is gospel, what Pastor Paul has shared with us. This is the heart of our faith. I want to turn your attention now to our suffering as we close this part of the service, this message, by thinking about how and when we suffer. So there's something about the lesson of Christ's suffering that is powerful for the levels of suffering that we have. And I'm, I'm very aware as a preacher, that it's, it's a challenge to preach on suffering. There's a, there's a range of people in the room, from those who are suffering, who have suffered, who feel like life just keeps, uh, you know, sending them one disaster after another, to those who feel like life is so good and we don't suffer very much and almost feel guilty for not having more bad things happen because we know about those who suffer and everything in between. And sometimes we trivialize suffering. Like my dad used to say, son, I'm really suffering here. Your mom's not here to make my soup. That's not what we're talking about, all right? So we have different current experiences, but listen, whatever suffering you're dealing with, is, is what we're talking about right now, whatever level it is. Someone said to me, my dog, uh, yesterday, my dog, you know, might only have a few months to live. And you say, well, that's not real suffering, is it? Yes, it is to the person that's your pet, the one you care about. It's just as real uh, in that moment as whatever suffering someone else may be dealing with. So this is my challenge. I'm trying to talk to a range of people and your current experience and your past experience with suffering. John chapter 19 permanently alters 
the way we people of the book see suffering. When Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, something radically changes. And so Pastor Paul hinted at this earlier. But there's a big difference between how you read about suffering in the Old Testament and how you read about suffering in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, Job is the prototype, and Job says, I dread all my suffering. There's suffering in the, the, the Old Testament that is referred to around the, the slavery in Egypt, around the exile in Babylon, a lot of personal and, and national circumstances, and it's almost always referred to as bad, as Paul said. In the New Testament, you find verses like this. The Apostle Paul says, we glory in our sufferings. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. What happened? John 19 happened. Almost from the beginning of the story, the disciples in the book of Acts are, are, are suffering on the count of Christ. And they said, and they went home rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. What happened in John chapter 19? Here it is in a sentence. And I've used the sentence before, and I'll probably use it again. It matters that much to me. In John chapter 19, the worst possible suffering humans could invent was inflicted on the most innocent person who ever lived and resulted in the greatest good possible. Worst possible suffering that humans could invent, crucifixion. Most innocent person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, the sinless one. Greatest good you can imagine, the provision of salvation for all who believe and the forgiveness of our sins. Now, how does that change suffering then? Why does that change everything about suffering? Well, first of all, let me mention what it doesn't change. First of all, that suffering is still suffering. Right? There's still suffering. It's always relative, but it's still there. It doesn't matter whether it's a food bill that can't be paid or a generation that is exterminated. Suffering is still there. That didn't change. Second, it's still hard. Nothing that we say today or we read in the New Testament says, okay, it's going to be easy the next time you face suffering. Nobody's suggesting that you can walk through this with your chin up all the time. Third, it's still confusing. We still ask why. We still struggle with why. There were times in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, even Jesus on the cross is saying, my God, my God, why have you... We have a model that it's still confusing for us in our humanity, in our struggle. And finally, what hasn't changed is that we still need help. So we can't go this alone. And sometimes we go to help that we should go to, and sometimes we go to help that we shouldn't. But typically when we face suffering, we call out to God, and if he won't change it, then we try to find an answer somewhere else. Medicine, or technology, or natural remedies, or addictions, or friends, or a legal challenge. Maybe I can get money out of this suffering that I've had. Or even superstition. We turn somewhere because we need help instinctively when we go through suffering. And our culture has complicated this struggle because in my view, and you may disagree, there are a lot of parents of young children here, and I just want you to ponder this. If you don't like it, it's okay. Push back later. I'm good with that. This is the first generation that assumes that parents are supposed to prevent all forms of suffering for their children. 
that the goal of parenting is to make sure my kids don't have physical or emotional pain. My parents didn't raise me that way. And our generation didn't raise us that way. So here's the problem with that. Once you, once, you re, once you think the job of the parent is to prevent suffering, then you go like, well, doesn't God love me as my father? Shouldn't he want to prevent all suffering for me? And I'm telling you, that's a cultural value. It's not a biblical value. There's nowhere in the Bible that says God's number one purpose is to keep you from hurting. It's not there. So what does the cross change about suffering? I have a few brief bullets and I'm done. Number one, we can never say that God doesn't get it. God was in the flesh suffering. Paul and I preached about that last week, so I won't belabor that point. But Jesus became one of us. We always know that God gets it. He's been through it. He understands it. Number two, we can never protest, but I don't deserve this. The gospel changes everything about worthiness, innocence, and entitlement. And nobody can say, I'm entitled to a life of no suffering once we understand sin and what Jesus had to go through to redeem us from our sin. We can never say, I don't deserve anything bad happening to me. Third thing that changes, suffering is never the end of the story once we understand Jesus. If God can redeem crucifixion, he can redeem any suffering, sometimes in this life, sometimes in eternity. Next, we're never alone. It's not only that God is with us, and he certainly is, but the New Testament says if one member suffers, every member suffers with him or her. So we have a community with whom we suffer. When we're connected to that community, and we choose that fellowship in that group. Next, we can always know it is finished. As Wayne Miller wrote to me this week, it's not just that God is able and willing to save us from suffering. He already has. Maybe not immediately, maybe not in the moment, but it is finished. Like the victory's been won over suffering and death. You know, even a child can grasp this. Suffering can result in joy and peace and hope. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and he says, I can turn this into a moment of joy and peace for you if you'll allow me to. But when I say even a child can grasp this, this past Wednesday night, our children were finishing up a, a series of studies on Moses, and Moses was a great leader, and so uh, the children were asked, you know, who are your leaders? Well, our pastors are our leaders. Well, why don't you write your leader a thank you for being a leader? And uh, I'm going to turn on my head mic now and turn around. So this is one of the notes that I got this week. So this is from Connor Dowdle, and he has clouds at the top, and sunshine and happy people at the bottom. And he's writing a note to me, his pastor. He's going, Pastor Bob, I got a word for you. I would like to tell you, there is always dark times, but always light too, so be joyful. Thank you, Connor. That's why suffering still, well, that's why suffering has been totally transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know it's not the only thing in life, and we can find joy in the presence and care of our Father.